This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Well, you know, each of us has things that are near and dear to our hearts. Objects that mean something to us. Items that we hold on to through the years. And this week, as we were tidying up the house, Christy picked up this beautiful uh, tea leaf lay that was made for me about two and a half years ago. um, That year, I had been coaching high school, the high school soccer team. And at the end of the year, a student who had made this by hand gave it to me as a token of honor and appreciation. And it's been hanging near our front door ever since. So when Christy picked it up the other day, her question to me was, do you want to hang on to this? And then she asked, does it have some kind of sentimental value? And it got me thinking about the difference between this lay and other lays. No lay, right, in and of itself, necessarily has lots of financial value, but this lay... Although it looked like many other lays, and was made out of the same stuff, made even by hand, uh, it had a bit of a different value, maybe a sentimental value. A value calculated not in cost, but in meaning. I'm sure you have things like this too. Perhaps you're a collector, perhaps you're holding on to something from a friend or a loved one. When I was a teenager, my grandpa died. I helped take care of him as he spent his last year or so withering away uh, in the back room of our trailer in Kentucky. To me, my grandpa was someone I really looked up to. He was someone that I feared. The kind of healthy fear, you know, a respectful fear. He was strong. He was tough. Uh, He could be kind, but he was also a little bit rough around the edges. He was a truck driver who wasn't afraid to work hard. And with the last name Smith, he went by Smitty. which was a good trucker name. And after he died, his company, they established an annual award in his name. Uh, He was a sort of local legend in his workplace. He fought in World War II and uh, was fine with his simple life there in Kentucky. And I didn't find out until after his death, however, that he was also a poet. And as he drove his truck, his rig through the states and slept in places overnight, words seemed to just bubble up out of him and manifested themselves uh, manifested themselves into pen strokes of ink onto the pages of these now tattered books that I have. Um, I hold on to these not merely because they're full of good poetry, they are, but because to me uh, these these two books that are falling apart um, they have a sentimental value. I love revisiting these from time to time. Uh, because, you know, they have poems about uh, the little things in life. Buttons, uh, streams, rain, circuses, faith, hope, furniture, and more. And I was reading one this week. Um, it was titled, This is the Town. Which touches uh, on part of what I've been talking about just, just now. Namely, how we invest things with meaning. And in this poem, my grandpa talks not about a thing really, but a place an unnamed town that was meaningful to him. And he wrote the poem and it said this, Of all the towns and cities, with all their boulevards and trees, this is the one that sure holds my fondest memories. 
each time I visit here again, I dream back through the years, and I live again in the hopes of youth and all its smiles and tears. I wander down the avenues and touch remembered places as wistfully I look around for some familiar faces. The laughter and the heartaches now are faded far away, but I still like to make believe today is yesterday. I know it cannot come to life the way it used to be, but oh, I love the fairyland of timeless memory. And this is a side of my grandpa that I only discovered after his death. Uh, I, I only wish I had known of this side of him before, because I love reading back uh, through these things. They evoke memories for me too. These little poem books, they are for me what some would call emotional repositories. And that, by the way, is our word of the week, emotional repositories. Riffing on the, the work of the scholar John Barton, I would define an emotional repository as a person, place, or thing that elicits emotion and evokes a sense of sacredness. Perhaps for you, an emotional repository is a house that elicits some emotion and evokes a sense of sacredness. Maybe it's a bedroom, maybe a journal, a gravestone, an instrument, a school, a, a picture, a movie, a song, maybe it's a person, a place, or some other thing. I think that we'd be hard-pressed to find a single person who has no emotional repositories in their lives. The same is true, too, of the earliest Christians. I would suggest, in fact, that quite like us, they had multiple emotional repositories, items that elicited emotion and evoked the sense of sacredness. One thing would have been water particularly in connection with baptism. The same is true for us. To be covered in, wa in the water brought forth emotions and inspired a sense of sacredness. This was being buried with Christ and raised with Him. The Lord's Supper would have been another very tactile thing that would have been an emotional repository. To sit at the table and eat in the presence of Christ, not merely remembering what He did, but bring the heft of that memory forward into the presence was profoundly moving and sacred. But the person of Jesus Himself for the earliest believers was an emotional repository. His followers' lives were bound up in His. The words He spoke, the roads He walked, the looks He gave, the touches He enacted... Um, and so on. These created a rich bank of memories and experiences to draw on. For those earliest Christians whose roots were Jewish, the temple, too, was an emotional repository. In time, however, as the Jerusalem temple faded from view, God's presence, as John describes it in Revelation, becomes the new temple. That thing, God's presence, and that place, God's presence, became a deep well of an emotional repository. God's presence is the new temple. Wherever God is, so is His temple. And as John turns to wrap up Revelation in the next few chapters, he'll give this just stunningly beautiful description of God's temple. That is, God's presence coming down. The presence of God in Christ descends and sets itself up in the middle of the city of people who are called the New Jerusalem. 
That's an astounding picture, friends. The, the presence of God in Christ at the center of His city, His people, the bride, the new Jerusalem. And just as for the first Christians, this too should be an emotional repository for us. Remember, what we typically call heaven is not a place of streets of gold and crystal seas. That's a misunderstanding and a misreading. That's a misconstrual. No, heaven, heaven, is simply a synonym for the fullness of God's presence. Right now, you see, in this life, we catch glimpses of that heaven and, and experiences of that heaven here on earth, glimpses of God among us, moments of God's glory, but only glimpses. We get glimpses of hell too, by the way. But to say heaven descends is to say the fullness of God's presence descends. They're synonyms. Heaven equals the fullness of God's presence. Heaven crashes into earth, as it were, in the form of the fullness of God's presence. And as John tells us, makes its everlasting abode here, in the midst of us, his city. And so the reality is this, as I said a few weeks ago, our hope is not in a place. Our hope is in a person. Or better yet, our hope is not in a place. Our hope is in a person in a place. Our hope is in Jesus, the fullness of God's presence. And as we turn to our focal passage for this morning, I want to encourage you to hold these thoughts at the front of your mind. We'll circle back to them, alright? But for now, we're going to turn to Revelation 18, 1-10. And you know, we actually only have four and a half chapters left out of 22 uh, after today of Revelation. So I'm going to read through these verses together. I want to read them together and then we're going to walk back through each of them. So, the text says this. After these things, I, John, saw another messenger coming down out of the sky having great authority. This messenger, I think, is actually Jesus. And the land shone from his glory. And he, Jesus, cried out in a strong voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the temple dwelling became one of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean bird, and hated bird, and a prison of every unclean beast. Because from the wine of the anger of her sexual immorality, all the nations drank, and the kings of the land committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the land, out of the power of her sensuality, became rich." And I, John, here, heard another voice of the sky saying, and this is the Spirit speaking now, Come out of my people, out of her, in order that you wouldn't share in common with her sins, and out of her plagues, in order that you might not receive them, because sins cling to her as far as the sky, and God remembers her injustices. Repay her as she also repays, and double the things doubled according to her deeds. And in the cup which was mixed, mixed double for her, as many glorify her and live sensually. Give her torment and mourning, because in her heart she said this, I seated myself queen, and I am not a widow, and I shall never know mourning. This is Rome saying this. Verse 8, because of this, on one day the plagues will come for her, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned by fire, because strong is the Lord God, the one judging her. And they will weep, and the kings of the land, and they will strike upon her, those committing sexual immorality with her, 
and being sensual whenever they shall see the smoke of her burning while standing from afar on account of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, great city, strong city, Babylon, because in one hour your judgment came. So in 18.1, John says he sees another messenger coming down out of the sky. And the English translations that say angel here are just wrong. This messenger has great authority, and the land shines from this figure's glory. And based on earlier descriptions of Jesus and Revelation, I take this messenger to be Jesus. In 18.2, Jesus speaks, and when he does, he indicts both Rome and Jerusalem. And in a strong voice, he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, by which he means Rome. Uh, then there's a tag on to this. And once again, our English translations, they just dropped the ball. They're wrong. They are wrong. No matter how many re you read, they're just wrong. They tend to say something like, Babylon the Great, and it has become. This is wrong. Now, I want to stop here and tell you, um, you can read as many English versions as you want. But if they have that, they're wrong. And let me say this. Uh, the English... The, the companies who publish and print and produce these English Bibles, right? They, their, their number one goal is to sell as many as possible so they can make as much profit as possible as their second goal, right? But their, their deal for all of these is to publish at a fourth grade reading level. All the English Bible translations you're reading are doing that, the fourth grade English uh, reading level. Right? They all talk about that, that proverbial fourth grade reading level. And so everything has to be watered down and dumbed down and simplified a bit. And so much is lost in translation. Much is just lost. This is a value of being able to navigate the original languages. And it's a value to have a, a teacher who can point these things out uh, when they occur. And so I'm attempting to, to share these with you as we go along. This is one instance where the English has just missed the boat, right? So the second bit here, uh, then, it says this, the temple dwelling became one of demons. And the point here, as in the preceding chapter, Revelation 17, is that Jerusalem has colluded with Rome. They formed a partnership with Rome. Jerusalem's rulers, its aristocracy, its higher-ups, its religious and temple leaders, have sold out to Rome. And this, this evokes some Old Testament, Old Testament memories, but also critiques, uh, Jesus' critiques of the temple uh, in Mark and in John's Gospels. Here he is critiquing them again, Jesus. The city of Jerusalem and its temple have become corrupt. The place that was supposed to be the temple dwelling of God has become an abode of demons and a prison of unclean spirits. Birds, hated birds, and unclean beasts. And these birds are likely, as in Mark's Gospel, representative of corrupted people and corrupt acts and deeds. They are a contrast with the clean and pure priests and their sacrifices that are supposed to happen in the temple and which are supposed to earmark the temple. In 18.3, Jesus continues by saying that it's not just Jerusalem, in fact, but all of the surrounding nations and their leaders and kings 
Even the merchants of the ancient world have drank the wine of Rome, the wine of the anger of her sexual immorality. This is a very vivid way of describing their idolatry with her, with Rome. Their acts of blasphemy, their collusion with Rome made them rich for a short time. This wealth and power seduced them. And as Jesus finishes speaking, the Spirit comes on the scene and speaks. His bit reminds us of Exodus, where Moses urges Pharaoh to let God's people go. The Spirit begins in 18.4 by saying, Come out, my people, out of her, in order that you wouldn't share in common with her sins, and out of her plagues, in order that you might not receive them. This is not necessarily a warning to physically leave Jerusalem or to physically leave Rome, although it could be. But it's likely really a warning to disengage from collusion with the empire, with the government. To disengage from either underhanded or out in the open acts of sin and evil. This is a warning not to forego repentance because in doing so, that invites God's wrath, that is God's withdrawal. Instead of God's with, God withdrawing from His people, the Spirit urges God's people to withdraw from sin and to turn to Christ. Why? Because as 18.5 says, Rome's sins and Jerusalem's sins and the nation's sins cling to them as far as the sky. And God remembers their injustices. When we forego repentance, God remembers our injustices. When we cling to sin, God remembers our injustices. That should make us shudder. That should drive us to immediate repentance. Part of our hope, however, is that God will forget these injustices and He will, as Scripture says, once we repent, that is, once we confess our sin, turn from it, and cling to Christ, that He'll forget it and remember it no longer. But not only our sins, or not only are our sins, our injustices remembered when we don't repent. Look at what 18.6 says about Rome and her consort, Jerusalem. It says, Repay her as she also repays, and double the things doubled according to her deeds. And in the cup which was mixed, mixed double for her. The idea of a double condemnation and double punishment is found throughout Israel's history. Back in Exodus, actually, we read of thieves having to pay back double when they're found out in Exodus 22. For guilty parties in Isaiah, double punishment is meted out in Isaiah 40 and 51. But for the faithful, the just, a double portion of joy is promised in Isaiah 61. So there's this tradition in Jewish thought of double punishment for acts of injustice. And when the Jewish aristocracy and religious leadership sold out to Rome repeatedly throughout its history, we may witness the double punishment in its initial stages being poured out upon them. Perhaps the second half will come when Jesus returns. But if you go back and look uh, at just the history of Jerusalem's temple, I mean, you see one of hardship. In the Old Testament times, in 586 BCE, the Babylonians, they sacked the Jerusalem temple. And a few hundred years later, in 168 BCE, the Syrians, they came and did the same, attacked Jerusalem's temple. This led to a seven-year revolt. And then about 100 years later, in 63 BCE, the Romans again attacked the temple. About 30 years after that, 
Herod the Great, he rose to power, and as a Jewish figure, was a good friend to the Romans. Some have called him a puppet to the Romans. He built statues to the Romans' gods. Um, he he uh, built statues to their rulers. And he, as one who identified as a Jew, led his people through years of acculturation that is tolerating and slowly imbibing Rome's culture and their language, etc. He led them from acculturation to accommodation. Accommodation is where they slowly have folks give way to their own ethnic and religious identity. And from acculturation to accommodation to assimilation. That is where you, you as Jews begin to fully look and sound like Romans. And Herod was moving them through this process. And we have uh, very similar things going on in the figure of Pontius Pilate in the first century when Jesus is alive and moving throughout the area. But then there was this Jewish war, or this Jewish revolt as it's often called, for four years in 66 to 70 CE, which culminated in the Romans in 70 CE once again attacking the temple. And as was often the case, it wasn't completely destroyed. Now, parts of it remained, and as ancient literature reveals to us, for another 65 years, Jewish folks would continue to go to the temple grounds and the altar in Jerusalem and make sacrifices according to Jewish law and custom. But three years after the revolt in 132 CE, called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, uh, in 135 CE, the Romans once and finally, once again and finally, destroyed the Jerusalem temple completely. This time, about 40 to 50 years after the New Testament's last document was written, Revelation, the temple is simply described as being plowed up. So, in spite of centuries of Jewish leaders trying to lead their people through acculturation to accommodation to assimilation, you know, often uh, through cutting economic deals and political deals, Rome always seemed to be the one to come out on top. And while Rome was... Uh, the chief problem, it wasn't just Rome. God's people had been unfaithful to God in many ways. They had broken the marriage covenant repeatedly throughout their history. And 18.7 des describes it, again, as many glorifying Rome. See that? Glorifying Rome as opposed to Christ. And living sensually. But Rome herself, with Jerusalem and the nations in tow, will bring upon themselves all the torment and mourning they themselves have created. And it originated in the heart of the heart-mind. Look at the end of 1817, or 18.7. Because in her heart she said this, Rome, I seated myself queen, and I'm not a widow, and I shall never know mourning. The reality is, as long as God was absent, mourning and torment were inevitable in Rome and everywhere else. Again, the Exodus comes to mind. In 18.8, it says this, Because of this, on one day, the plagues will come for her. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up by fire. Because strong is the Lord God, the one judging her. And we know, historically, we know from history, from ancient literature, that Jerusalem's temple was set on fire and partially burned in 70 CE. And we know that Nero burned up Rome, as we've talked about, in 64 CE. So we have a historical precedent for the language of burning and fire here. And in 18.9, there's a crazy picture of all of Rome's consorts. It says... And they, that is the merchants and suitors, will weep 
and the kings of the land. And they will strike upon her, those committing sexual immorality with her, and being sensual. And whenever they see the smoke of her burning, while standing from afar, on account of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, great city, strong city Babylon, because in one hour your judgment came. When I talked a moment ago about that process of acculturation to accommodation to assimilation. This is a pattern that we see when one nation takes over another nation or when one people group takes over another people group. We see this play out actually, this pattern play out in Hawaii's history. Uh, in fact, a group brings in its culture, acculturation, forces it and gets others to eventually accommodate, accommodation, and finally accept it and become part of it, assimilation. Guys like Herod the Great, as I said, were involved in such things. We can describe another side of this too. Collusion, exile, destruction. Jerusalem repeatedly throughout our history colluded with Rome and other nations. And eventually, this sinful collusion, at least in part, led to her exile. And in the end, it often entailed her destruction. Collusion, exile, destruction. It's an interesting pattern that emerges. Collusion leading to exile, leading to destruction. And what we see is that happens at two levels, really. Corporately, or collectively, that is, as a group, and personally, on an individual level. Think about that pattern. It's not just a cycle in Israel's history but also the church's history, and even our own personal histories. Collusion with sin, exile from God, and moments of destruction. But one of the most helpful things about it all is that here in Revelation 18, once the Spirit speaks, His first words are, Come out of it! Come out of this pattern! Break the pattern! Break the cycle! Come out of it! It raises the question, doesn't it? How do we come out? How do we exit the pattern? How do we break the cycle? And as I begin to come to a close here, I just want to leave you with three ways to exit the cycle, to break the pattern, to get out. And the first is this, that we have to recognize that the cycle exists and that we're in the midst of it. If we don't recognize that, we won't know that we're in that. And if we fail to own up to it, we can never step out of it. Like AA, right? The first step is admitting there's a problem. You and I as Christ's bride, as the church, we need to recognize such things at the group level, but also at the individual level. But we all know that the first step is just that, the first, right? Recognizing it. We have to take some more steps, though. For us, I think the second step is this. Putting Jesus at the center. You've heard me say this so many times in our study of Revelation. Or if I could circle back to my earlier thought, let's have Jesus be our emotional repository. He is what we place our stock in. Remember, an emotional repository is a person, a place, or a thing that elicits emotion and evokes a sense of sacredness. When we hear Jesus' name, when we encounter Jesus, what other choices do we as His followers have, really? He elicits those deep emotions within us. He moves us. And if you hear the name of Jesus and it doesn't do something for you, that's a bad sign, folks. But this brings us to the third point, His glory. His glory is His sanctifying presence. And that changes us. By the way, if someone asks you to define glory, 
The reality is there are many definitions uh, in Scripture. There are a lot of different words for glory, especially in Hebrew. But the core one really is what I just said. God's purifying, sanctifying presence. And that looks most manifest in the person of Jesus. To enter into the presence of Jesus is to enter into that purifying, sanctifying presence, glory. It's a presence that makes us holy as He is holy, perfect as He is perfect. Yes, friends, Jesus has told us right off of the Savior's very lips, y'all be perfect just as I am perfect. And remember, that doesn't mean, it patently doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It simply means that your heart, mind, and mind, which has like popped out of place like a dislocated collarbone, right, needs popped back in. And once it's popped back in, we're capable of loving God, loving others, loving self, and loving creation perfectly in moments. Again, fleeting moments. And when Christ returns, those moments that punctuate the current space-time continuum of our lives will then be unbroken. Unbroken moments of perfection in the fullness of God's presence. So to reiterate the three points of how we break the cycle or pattern of collusion, exile, and destruction. One, we recognize that we're in it. Two, we put and keep Jesus at the center as our emotional repository and our intellectual repository. And three, we hold that stance that we're in. Standing in that place of God's purifying, sanctifying presence His glory. You know, I was, I, I was reminded recently of this old proverb, an old maxim. It's short, but it's potent and it's poignant. It's a tip about how to catch a monkey. All right, so the first step to catching a monkey is getting a jar that's just barely wide enough for a monkey's hand to fit in. The second step is to fill it three-quarters or three-fourths of the way with rocks. This prevents the monkey from lifting the jar and carrying it off. The third step to catching a monkey is to put one monkey treat at the foot of the jar and then a bunch of monkey treats inside. The fourth step is to sit back and wait. And once you've done this, the monkey will come over and find the treat outside the jar. And then he'll take notice of the treats inside the jar. And after he reaches his empty hand down inside, he'll pick up a fistful of treats. But when he goes to pull his hand out, now it's a fist, and it's wider, and it's fuller, and it'll be stuck. He won't be able to get it out of the jar. And not for any reason will he let go of those treats. He wants them. And he's stuck there, unable to get his hand out of that jar. Right? And you, you can then walk right over and pick up the jar with the monkey in it, and you've captured a monkey. But there's something similar that happens to us if we don't take that first step of rest, recognizing that we're stuck. Stuck in the pattern of sin. Stuck in the pattern uh, and, and trapped in that pattern of brokenness. Swallowed up by a jar of collusion and exile and destruction that we won't or let uh, that we won't or can't let go of right if we refuse to recognize that we'll remain stuck in its grip in its fist and we'll pay for it so my challenge to you this week don't be a monkey let go 
so you can come out. Right? Let go. Come out of the pattern of sin. Unclench your fist. Drop whatever it is you have in your hand that's keeping you from God and letting God have you and turn to Him with unclenched fists. And once you do, once you open your hand, you'll drop what you're holding on to and then you can take hold of Christ's hand freely. You'll no longer be captive to sin, but to freedom and healing in Christ. Captive to freedom and healing in Christ. Let God bring you out and purify you and sanctify you all the while keeping Christ at the center of your life. Amen? Amen. Well, all right. If you would, uh, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, may you go forth with unclenched fists, remembering, emptying whatever it is you're holding on to, to Jesus, knowing that as you do, He'll break the cycles of sin in your life, the cycles of collusion, exile, and destruction. And may you recognize these patterns and confront them. May you allow Jesus to be your center and your repository. And may you know His purifying, sanctifying grace, allowing it to rule over you and within you. And as you do, may you call boldly upon the name of Jesus, that sacred name, the name of Jesus, the name we revere, the name of Jesus, the name we love, the name of Jesus, the name we cherish, the name that is our banner, the name of Jesus, the name burned on our lips, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, Jesus, He's King of kings and Lord of lords and Caesar of Caesar, President of presidents, Jesus, only Jesus. Go in peace, in, the, in goodness, truth, and beauty of that name, friends, the name of Jesus. Amen.